Meet Rabio the Octopus. Uh, Rabio the Octopus became famous this summer. He was fished out of the sea uh, off the coast of Hokkaido, Japan. Uh, he was a gimmick for this summer's World Cup. And as you can see in this video, before each match that would involve the Japanese national soccer team, uh, Rabio was placed in a small wading pool. And inside the pool lay two baskets, each with either Japan's flag or a flag of the opposing nation. And Rabio was asked to pick the basket with the flag of the winning team. Uh, it sounds ridiculous on the surface. It sounds delicious uh, to some people. Uh, now, incredibly, it turns out, Rabio is somewhat psychic, for he correctly predicted Japan's matches with Colombia, Senegal, and Poland. Uh, gimmicks only get about 15 minutes of fame, and there is one thing Rabio didn't see coming. This little octopus went to market. <laughs> That's right, he made his next appearance at a sushi bar. Just to be clear, he ate him, he wasn't making like a cameo appearance or something like that. Uh, then in the next match involving Japan in the World Cup, Japan was eliminated by Belgium. One Twitter user explained the result uh, as saying, and I quote, Fisherman murders psychic octopus and dooms national team. Yeah. Really, really. One dead octopus drove a whole nation to defeat. Uh, now, this is something very interesting when we encounter disappointments and, and sufferings of different kinds. Human beings would rather blame themselves for suffering than have no explanation at all. Now, the prophet Daniel is reflecting on this very important question. Why this suffering? Uh, and, and he's living in a time of community trauma, uh, of loss on uh, an epic scale, an entire nation taken over by another nation, not only occupied, but their homes destroyed, their civilization turned to ruin, and then taken out of where they live and marched back to someone else's country. Exiled, humiliated. If you can imagine, every day you wake up in a place where you don't belong, sticking out like a sore thumb made all the while even worse in your mind and heart because you're supposed to be these people set apart, these people of God, and yet you have no power over any of the circumstances in which you live. Now Daniel interprets this uh, suffering as punishment, uh, especially in the words of this prayer we can see it. We have been unfaithful to God, so... God, at best, allowed or perhaps even actively sent another nation to harm us, to destroy our way of life. Uh, do you remember the movie uh, Independence Day? It was a ridiculous movie, I have to admit. But uh, in summation, aliens arrive in a uh, in city-sized spaceships and deploy themselves around the world and begin destroying the Earth's largest cities. Now, if you change the plot of the movie just a little bit, 
to say the aliens were sent by God to punish earthlings for their unfaithfulness, would you believe the plot line? You know, I find it funny. I can entertain notions of extraterrestrials all day, but I am disturbed by the idea that God would willfully destroy an entire civilization. And this theology, this understanding of God can be found in the book of Deuteronomy and sprinkled throughout parts of the Old Testament. And the real implication of, of thinking of God in this way is this. If you follow the rules, if you follow the rules, you get all the goodies that you can, but if you do not, destruction is sure to come. And for someone who chewed gum in a classroom, this is bad news, folks. Of course, if you've ever read the book of Job, there's a different idea there altogether. Sometimes suffering, sometimes pain, just is. Sometimes horrible things happen because they happen. Sometimes there's no blame to be found for something terrible. Now, as Daniel begins his prayer with confession, uh, I'll confess, I don't like the idea of a vengeful God. And what really bothers me is actually not God at all. It is how people use God's supposed actions for their own purposes. Think about this for a moment. God's wrath is only welcomed when it's directed at someone else. When it's a hurricane in another city, or another state, or another country, when our political enemies fall from grace, when your least favorite family member finally faces consequences. <laughs> no? No one? <laughs> and, and, and we claim these results that we either sanction or we even sometimes like are, are results that come from God, but that doesn't make it God's wrath. It, it means we make God in our own self-image. And take a good look in the mirror because that's not a pretty image. A vengeful God is bad theology. It denies God's hopes and designs for our gracious redemption. Our entire religion of Christianity rests on this idea that we are brought back from the brink, that we are never too far from God's grace, that in the dirty and the greasy and the ugly places of humanity, God creates a clean heart. God renews a right spirit. In fact, God doesn't destroy humanity. God chooses to change it. God calls each of us from our own paths of self-destruction and points us to life. Uh, now, we're going to see a picture here. Just this uh, past week, some good and noble person in Wisconsin was wandering along in a forest and happened uh, along this curious sight. Five baby squirrels twisted up with one another by their tails. The squirrels were taken to a local animal shelter, 
And, and when, when the doctors, the vet, and the other attendants examined the squirrels, they saw that the twine and the plastic strips the mother squirrel had gathered up and, and used to make this nest had become wrapped around the squirrels. It must have been quite a wrestling match. Uh, they were untangled with some anesthesia and released back into the forest. But this image of tangled squirrels is very representative of our own prayer life. You see, we, we wrestle with whether or not we can truly be honest in our prayer. The reality is that in suffering, we either blame ourselves, we blame others, or we blame God. It may be bad theology, but it's a real emotion. And it's important for us to pray to God how we feel. More important than how we think we should feel. Our outpouring of prayer is valid and good because it is authentic. And if we hold back, our prayer life and our relationship with God will suffer. But if we open up, as vulnerable as it will feel, we rest in our relationship with the creator of the universe. We are reminded that God's steadfast love does indeed endure forever. Now Daniel, he, he appears, he appeals to God for mercy. Mercy. The Hebrew word for mercy actually comes from the Hebrew word for womb. God's mercy literally means cherishing the womb. And prayer always has an element of humility and an appeal for that cherishing mercy. The mercy not that God will relent, but that God will continue to nurture and to cherish and to love. So why do we fail to pray? Now, I should write a book on that. <laughs> why do we fail to pray? And really the answer is it depends on who we choose to blame. We neglect our prayer life because we are unworthy of God's attention. Or God is unworthy of our time. Now these feelings of unworthiness can only be addressed when we share them. Now instead of distancing ourselves from God, we can find that in releasing our fears and our worries and our doubts, we are drawn closer. And folks, if we're that worried about God knowing what we think and feel, we will never know God in any meaningful way. Uh, an Anglican priest named Kenneth Leach once said, the best preparation for a life of prayer is to be more intensely human. Your worthiness or unworthiness is irrelevant. Prayer is to give of your true self, holy, in the moment, in God's presence. So when all doesn't go according to our great hopes and expectations, when we do blame ourselves 
or when we do choose to blame others, or when we blame God. Pray it. Share it. Release it. And lean on God's mercy. Praying for mercy is not an act of desperation, but a stubborn refusal to let go of God's promise. Let's defy the challenges we are facing and pray for mercy. Uh, last week, I was making fun of uh, a couple of people who were listening to 80s music, and so it got me thinking as I was writing this sermon, uh, what song from the 1980s could I connect uh, with this theme? And I knew you'd all be so interested in the answer to that question. Now, in March of 1986, the American band Mr. Mister topped the charts with a song called Kyrie. Now, people really loved the song, well, obviously, or it wouldn't top the charts, but they couldn't figure out what the lyrics were saying. In fact, there would be this verse, and whenever the chorus would come, they would just kind of, you know, like that. But the chorus actually begins saying, Kyrie eleison, right? Kyrie eleison, which in Greek means, Lord, have mercy. Now, you might recognize the tune. Kyrie eleison down the road that I must travel. Kyrie eleison through the darkness of the night. Kyrie eleison where I'm going you will follow. Kyrie eleison on the highway in the light. Few people, maybe. But this is prayer. In the ordinary, unremarkable moments of your day, remarkably, you are surrounded by God's mercy. We all are, whether we know it or not. And if we so choose to deepen that mercy, it will get us through the darkness of the night. And that's why prayer matters. 